Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is intercepted. I'm Maya Hibbett, an associate editor with The Intercept. As the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues, President Joe Biden will travel to Brussels for a NATO summit and to Warsaw for a meeting with the Polish president. President Biden travels to Brussels this week, aiming to present a united front on the Ukraine war with European and NATO leaders. That's just part of what's expected to be a pivotal week for the administration. His visit to Poland will take place a day after he meets with NATO allies, G7 and EU leaders in Brussels to discuss efforts to support Ukraine and imposing sanctions on Russia. This comes one week after Congress approved a bill for 13.6 billion dollars in emergency assistance for Ukraine. That same day, he announced the US government would send an additional 800 million dollars worth of weapons. We started our assistance to Ukraine before this war began as they started to do exercises along the Ukrainian border the Russians starting in March of last year. We took the threat of Putin invading very seriously. We acted on it. We sent Ukraine more security assistance last year, $650 million in weapons, including anti-air and anti-armor equipment, before the invasion. More than we had ever provided before. So when the invasion began, they already had in their hands the kinds of weapons they needed to counter Russian advances. Tensions continue to rise, with fears of a worsening conflict on the horizon. There's the inevitable worry of a full-on war between Russia and NATO one in which nuclear weapons could be engaged. Since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, journalists, think tank experts, and members of Congress have repeatedly asked the Biden administration about supplying more military assistance and calling for a no-fly zone. You have noted from the podium that, that, that Putin has shown no signs of changing course. You've also noted that there are significant consequences that Putin could still face. Even with this additional aid that you're providing today, it seems there are still other options on the table. So why hold back? Why not use every tool at your disposal now to spare additional lives? Would a, a strike in Poland on supplies or, or, or anything really uh, automatically be met with a military forceful response or simply a conversation amongst allies about how to respond? President Zelensky, in his remarks to Congress today, again, made his request for a no-fly zone. He, no doubt, is aware of President Biden's position on that. Is there any scenario in which President Biden would change his mind? 
Implementing a no-fly zone would bring the U.S. into direct conflict with Russia, escalating the war and worsening the human toll. According to the United Nations Refugee Agency, 10 million people, more than a quarter of Ukraine's population, have now fled their country because of the fighting. The UN Human Rights Office reported that the war has killed at least 900 civilians, but the number is likely much higher. Ken Klippenstein, an investigative reporter with The Intercept, and Sarah Sirota, an associate reporter with The Intercept, have been closely following the national security developments in Washington. They join me now to discuss the United States' role in the war and how the Biden administration is skirting the line of direct involvement. I asked Sarah and Ken exactly what type of military aid the U.S. has provided and what they will continue to provide. So one of the first things we did, I was told by an Army signals intelligence analyst back in February, was provide extensive uh, ISR, stands for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance assets and to uh, neighboring countries. So uh, these are largely air assets. So for example, we have uh, sent MQ-9 Reaper drones, Boeing rivet joints, and what's called AWACS. It's like these huge planes that can hoover up signals from you know radios, calls, but also peer deeply within the country to take photographs of what's going on. And then we share that with the liaison officer to the Ukrainians. And the, the nature of this assistance has to be subtle. It can't, you know, take place from within the country because that runs the risk of putting the U.S. in direct confrontation with Russia, which carries all sorts of, you know, risks beyond just being a world war type situation. There are nuclear risks as well. So what the Biden administration has done, I think very cautiously, has uh, been to try to find out what kinds of support we can provide Ukraine that that doesn't bring us into um, direct conflict with, with the Russians. You know, so Ukraine is a U.S. ally, But could you just explain a little bit for listeners why the U.S. can't actually surveil from within Ukraine, why the United States has to stay within the allied countries like uh, Poland and Romania? Yeah. So once you enter into the airspace, the Russians can shoot down, you know, whether it's a drone, um, like I mentioned before, the rivet joints or the AWACS. And, you know, in the cases of the the aircraft that aren't drone, the the so-called manned aircraft, you know, that would be killing U.S. troops, and then that would probably precipitate a response from us, and it can just, you know, create a tit-for-tat situation where either side continues escalating until, you know, ultimate disaster. It's kind of interesting. You talk to people in the Pentagon, they understand this stuff very well, and they actually resemble what is called the dovish side on, on the part of the foreign policy community, whereas you look at the think tank world and some of these guys, and they have a much more let's say, detached from the reality on, on the ground than, than, than the guys actually doing the work and, and who themselves realize the adversary we're up against. A point brought up to me again and again was when you're in a situation where you could come in conflict with the Russians, this is very different from the Warren uh, terror style engagements we've had after 9-11, where you're fighting non-state actors. We are finally fighting not only a state actor, but one with nuclear weapons, a very advanced military, a huge military budget. And so this is a much different problem that you have to develop a solution for than than the kinds of conflicts we've faced in the past. You know, when you're fighting Al-Qaeda, you're fighting ISIS, you don't have to worry about them launching a tactical nuclear weapon. You don't have to worry about them having an air force because they don't have one. And so it's a completely different state of affairs. And I feel like in the in the think tank world or, or parts of certainly cable news, let's say, 
I don't think that there's been as as much appreciation for for the difference that this kind of conflict presents. I think also, um, in addition, while Al-Qaeda and ISIS are not nuclear-powered groups or have sophisticated air forces, like Ken was mentioning, we do have experience fighting in proximity to Russia on opposing sides, particularly in Syria. Russia has been a big supporter of the Assad regime, while we supported rebels in that civil war, some of whom turned out to be uh, not so moderate as we've claimed in the past. But we do have experience sort of engaging in these sort of deconfliction engagements with uh, Russia trying to operate on opposing sides, but also trying to avoid direct confrontation while supplying, whether it's intelligence or physical assets, to allies or partners of ours engaging in hostilities. Yeah, it was interesting in in talking to current and former officials in the intelligence community, hearing them describe even the kinds of intelligence that we are passing to the Ukrainians has to be limited in nature. Everyone I interviewed was careful to note that we are not giving them what's called targeting intelligence. That is intelligence that can be used in real time to target and, you know, kill or attack Russians. And I was surprised by that because, again, these guys in the military, these are not, you know, dovish type people generally. And then so you ask, well, you know, why why all this caution when what you're seeing in the cable news is like, we got to send jets in and we got to bomb them or we got to hit. I mean, I saw one case, somebody was saying we need to assassinate Putin. You talk to guys in the military, it's not that they like Putin by any means. They hate this guy. I mean, this is their adversary. But again, there is a recognition of the reality that, you know, if if there is direct confrontation, things can spin out of control very quickly. And so in, in the case of the intelligence sharing, I was really surprised to hear this. It's like it has to be maybe imagery intelligence, maybe signals intelligence that can help inform the um, Ukrainians about where they might get hit, how to, you know, seek refuge or try to protect themselves, but it can't be the kind of thing that they can use in an aggressive fashion. I was really surprised. Sarah brought up an interesting point with deconfliction. That's the process by which you tell the Russians, you know, maybe our sorties are moving here, and then or, or you, you try to give them some information about your military activity so that they don't bump into your military. So again, a lot of appreciation for this just reality, whether you like it or not, that you can't have direct confrontation without a whole lot of risk coming along with that. But of course, this is also um, a reflection of the U.S. perspective on what constitutes confrontation or engaging in support for an ally without crossing a certain threshold or line that might, in Russia's view, justify retaliation. So in addition to intelligence and reconnaissance support, we have been supplying weapons to Ukraine. We've been giving them Javelin missiles, um, surface-to-air missiles. And Russia has already come out and said that we will consider these convoys of weapons to be legitimate targets for us. Um, So, you know, that's something that we or the United States may not directly see as provocative or, or amounting to U.S. direct engagement in this conflict, but that's, you know, the U.S. perspective. And of course, in any conflict where we have any level of engagement, there is risk and sort of managing that risk, what we're willing to take on versus not such as, as Ken was explaining, you know, bombing and striking Russian targets directly, which I think most people inside the Pentagon that we've interacted with agree would be way too hostile. 
you know, these are things that that the U.S. military is weighing. Something that I found extremely concerning is just this glibness with which particularly cable news is saying, you know, we need to send, you know, we got to give the MiGs to these guys and send an Air Force in here. And it's like um, the stuff that Biden is already doing uh, is not without risk. So to give you guys an example, a Russian drone that was operating in Ukraine drifted into Poland, it seemed accidentally. And then Poland, a NATO member said, you know, we're going to have to shoot this down. Um, ultimately, the drone, they were able to correct it and send it back into Ukraine, where it was ultimately shot down. But this is an example of even just things that you're using for, like I was saying before, ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, even if it's, the, even if these things don't have Hellfire missiles or whatever to, you know, engage uh, targets in a, in a, you know, direct fashion, that still carries risks of confrontation. So Biden is already doing quite a lot. And that was what I was trying to dispel in this story, this notion that, oh, the president isn't doing anything. He needs to get tough and get involved in this. He's, he's involved. And I think um, to his credit in, in interviewing, folks and speaking with folks in Congress, he's been, he's been fairly cautious and restrained because he has to be. The downside of that kind of subtle engagement is that it might not generate the sorts of headlines that, that, you know, having boots on the ground would, but again, that doesn't mean that he's not involved, that he's not contributing things to try to help. And that, um, that kind of involvement doesn't carry its own risk. I think that's a good point. And I have a few follow-up questions on this, but first I wanted to back up a little bit because Sarah, you raised a really interesting point about the precedent of deconfliction in the context of of Syria and the sort of proxy war that was happening there. And I was wondering if we could just revisit that quickly with a little bit more specificity about, for any listeners that don't remember, what the U.S. role in Syria was and how that represents this kind of deconfliction effort. You know, in terms of Syria, we historically have provided support to rebels that were fighting against the Assad regime, all different kinds of rebels, some of whom turned out to have ties to al-Qaeda and even ISIS later on. And so Syria or Assad has had support from Russia in terms of maintaining its air superiority and other kinds of support. And, um, you know, here we saw Russia backing a regime that has used chemical weapons and other violent means to suppress the the rebels that have been engaging in a civil war there. And I think it's sort of that experience that has led people to be surprised to an extent by the Russian, in the initial phases of this Ukrainian war, to be less victorious than than a lot of military experts would have assumed based on the Russian experience in Syria. And also its support for you know, very violent force in Syria has led to worries that Russia will be willing to use very brute force, which we've already seen in Ukraine. And I think that's sort of what has contributed to concerns about chemical weapons, biowarfare, and even nuclear weapons. Yeah, to expand a little bit on the um, deconfliction point, it's kind of counterintuitive because you think of U.S. and Russia, not exactly friends, obviously, you know, ardent adversaries. But one thing they do is they have military to military communication where they'll say, our jets are going here. 
I mean, we're going to tell you this so that your jets don't bump into them and then create an international incident. So there's actually a lot of high-level communication between military leadership, again, not because we're friends, but because of this recognition by folks who have the actual expertise and are actually doing these things, not sitting you know, in an air-conditioned room on the set of a cable news show, but people that have actually fought wars and understand how it works, realizing you have to do these things. This is just what you do to prevent uh, disaster. And so that's sort of what deconfliction de is, and, it, and it's an interesting illustration of the nature of the conflict here, because that's absolutely going on in, in any sort of potential superpower confrontation. There's a, there's a recognition of the stakes, and because of that, there's, there's high-level communication. And so when I first learned about it, I was kind of surprised. I thought, wait, we're actually telling them things? But it's not like giving them information to hurt us. It's giving them information to mutually prevent and, and draw down the risk of, of some kind of crisis. This happens all the time also between Russia and Israel, as Israel tries to strike targets in Syria where it believes that Iran is setting up military bases um, and then works with Russia to make sure, since Russia controls a lot of the Syrian airspace, to make sure that it's okay that it does those operations. You, you note in your story that U.S. officials who are knowledgeable about the operations told you that they can't share real-time intelligence, but they often will share intelligence information that they've kind of gathered and processed on their own with the delay can you explain a little bit more how that avoids crossing these very particular lines? Yeah, well, as Sarah said, to some extent, we are creating our own lines and hoping that the Russians share those lines. And that's why diplomacy and communication are so important, because if you're operating on different ideas of wh wh where the red lines are, you can, you know, get into a uh, conflict very quickly. But I, I think something generally agreed upon is, yeah, you're not going to share targeting stuff that can be used directly to hit somebody immediately. And so because of that, there's a delay, I'm told, between, I mean, not, not always very much of one, maybe the delays hours or even in some cases minutes, but you're not going to give them real time, like a video feed into exactly where the Russians are, because again, that can be used to, uh, but it's sort of, a lot of this stuff is arbitrary determining where these lines are. And that's why it's so important that you don't get into this situation that, you know, as awful as what Russia is doing, clearly illegal, going to have a horrible human rights toll, you have to maintain lines of communication to, to, to understand, you know, where, what you might do could lead to some kind of response from them. And, you know, just, I mean, the Biden administration is a situation where they have to figure out how far can we go where we come right up to that line and no farther. And and so far, my impression is that they've done a pretty decent job of that, but it's not easy. And as I said before, with the case of the drone that drifted into Polish airspace, I, it seems on accident, it's not just intentions, accidents can happen too. So anytime you're, you're sharing things like this, things don't always go according to plan. But um, it's kind of interesting, the disjunct between the kind of circumspect and, and, and careful attitude of, of the U.S. in sharing these things. And then you compare that with, again, what you see on cable news and from some of these think tanks. It's like night and day difference, you know? It's, it's very concerning to me because the public is getting their messaging not from the folks in the intelligence community and the military that we've spoken to for this story. They're getting them from people on TV that seem to have a wildly different, uh, how do you say, risk risk matrix for how they're approaching these things. And I, I wish that there could we could reconcile those things a little bit more so people could get a more realistic picture of, of, of what's going on, what the stakes are, what what the concerns are. But unfortunately, that, that doesn't seem to be the case. And of course, uh, the lawmakers that are also very hawkish are the ones that get the most attention in the cable news. So it's not just, you know, cable news reporters and maybe, you know, the re occasional retired 
DOD or CIA analyst that likes to join CNN or Fox or whatever it is after they retire. It's also, you know, members of Congress like Adam Kinzinger, who's been, or um, Lindsey Graham, who've been very provocative in their calls for how the U.S. should approach Russia, whether it's assassinating Putin or declaring a no-fly zone that most military experts would agree would be incredibly escalatory and put the United States into direct warfare with a nuclear-armed country. Sarah makes a really good point. There seems to be a lot of incentive for saying these bombastic things, political incentive. You know, you get to seem like a tough guy and you're, you know, this guy's really, you know, this 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 guy's not afraid of anybody, that kind of thing. But the reality is, like, hopefully we're not going to act on any of that stuff because it would mean disaster really quickly. But the scary thing is that I think when you have a political climate where they're allowed to say these things, at some point people start believing them, including in government. Just in case anybody's not on the same page yet, um, what actually does implementing a no-fly zone entail? So a no-fly zone is a kind of brilliant term of art because it sounds really nice. It's like, oh, there's no jets flying overhead that'll save you know civilians. But the reality, you know, the the unasked question embedded in 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 that in that bit of language is, you know, how is this being enforced? And the reality is, this is enforced by shooting down Russian jets, and they don't really get into that part when they use this uses piece of terminology. And and what's interesting is when you do the, if you look at the polling, there's, you know, tons of support for a no-fly zone. But if you ask the question in a sort of realistic fashion that explains to the person, you know, what that entails, suddenly support for it drops off to a, I think, small minority. And, and that's a reflection of the poor job that I think the national media has done at explicating these things and what they mean. Again, if you just heard it and you're an ordinary person, you think, oh, no no jets in the air. That sounds great. There aren't going to be airstrikes and um, human, the human suffering that that entails. But there's going to be a whole lot of human suffering when you're shooting down the Russian jets. And then the Russians respond with, and Sarah can, can speak to this, there's a lot of analysis in the military that suggests that the Russians might use a tactical nuclear weapon in some fashion um, in response to something like that to try to get the get the U.S. to back off or NATO to back off or just scare everyone into submission. And then once uh, under nuclear doctrine, when one party uses one, uh, other states view it as though they have to use a nuclear weapon in response to that response. And so this, I think there's very little appreciation for how, how these, how these sorts of military operations are not completely confined. Like it, you might just say, okay, we're just going to shoot down one jet, but that's not putting into account the the web of consequences that sort of that sort of spreads out from any one of these decisions. Yeah, I think people are also used to hearing no fly zones in the context of the Libyan intervention that we did in 2011, which is incredibly different. That's not putting us into conflict with a nuclear armed country. And I think there's a lack of appreciation um, because nuclear weapons have been so out of the dialogue of national security conversation in recent years that people forget that these weapons still exist and are extremely um, dangerous um, and deadly. And Russia has a massive nuclear arsenal. And, you know, it's, it's very much believed in in U.S. national security circles, you know, they don't have a no first use policy as the U.S. does not. And so it's assumed that they are willing to use a nuclear weapon in a conventional context. Before we talk about the nuclear weapons, let's just discuss the conventional weapons that the U.S. will and will not supply. For example, if you listen to the some of the White House press briefings last week, um, you would hear reporters repeatedly calling for these things called MIGs um, and saying that Zelensky was requesting them. What are MIGs and why 
are those on the list of weapons that the United States will not supply to Ukraine? So MiGs are Soviet fighter jets that we don't have MiGs, um, but our allies like Poland have MiGs. And so it was either Zelensky or or Poland that um, suggested the the idea of delivering Polish MiGs to the Ukrainian military and routing them through a NATO military base in Germany. And the U.S. or the Biden administration rejected this idea because they thought that it would seem too hostile to have these aircraft come uh, through a NATO military base. You know, there there are plenty of voices in Congress and in cable media that are advocating for this, but the administration has decided that that is a line that it is not willing to cross. Yeah, that's a good example of the way in which, like I said before, the most bombastic voices will generate the most publicity. I can tell you for a fact that I have sources in the national security community that at the time that this MIG thing was being pushed and there was enormous cover, you know, give them the MIG, this will help them so much. The people that didn't get voiced were the guys, particularly in the Defense Department. I, I know for a fact that uh, Secretary of Defense Austin was opposed to this. They were extremely worried about it. And there was a conflict between the uh, State Department and the Joint Chiefs and the, the leadership of the Office of the Secretary of Defense saying, no, this is a really dangerous idea. Who knows how Russia will respond? And sadly, the, the latter group, the, the Voice for Restraint, they don't get the same coverage. And there's a number of structural reasons for that. One is that, you know, they can't come out and say this stuff publicly because it would be politically disastrous, make the administration look like they're, you know, backing down and weak. And then the other thing is just this preference that the media tends to have, again, for, for, for the most, you know, vivid and exciting statements. How exciting is it for someone to come out and just, you know, be this voice of reason and say, okay, guys, we need to calm down here. There's just, unfortunately, I think there's just a disposition not to want to air those kinds of concerns. Yeah. And then, you know, during press briefings, you'll hear reporters question, well, why aren't we sending these weapons? Why aren't we doing this in a military way? And then you'd barely get any questions. Well, why aren't we offering this diplomatic concession? And, you know, it seems like such a, I don't know, like a loser attitude or something to, you know, be willing to offer some sort of diplomatic negotiation with Putin, this, you know, horrible tyrant, and nobody that's advocating that I'm aware of for diplomatic solutions believe that Putin is justified or, you know, that he shouldn't face some sort of punishment. But we're talking about trying to find ways to de-escalate a war that is killing innocent people. Um, and yeah, I mean, is is a willingness to, you know, swallow your pride a little bit and and make diplomatic overtures to Russia, something that's worthwhile in this context. I mean, you don't even, that conversation doesn't even come up. It's always what military support can we be sending? Why aren't we doing more militarily? Why aren't we doing more diplomatically? I think that your average person would very much be uh, questioning that, or at least why aren't we having this conversation? Yeah. And to speak to your question a little bit more about the arms support, that's what I found uh, frustrating in investigating this story was how much the Biden administration is doing. And when you talk to people in Congress, um, they have concerns that, uh, you know, even if Biden is someone who personally favors restraint, the political climate is such that there's so much pressure being brought to bear on him as we come into a midterm election. And the media coverage is such that it's going to reward any of these sort of, um, you know, provocative uh, rhetoric or, or even actions that he's going to just from that political pressure have to bow to it and, and end up doing more. But just looking at what he's already done, looking at my notes here. 
We've provided um, tens of thousands of anti-tank weapons, the exact uh, sorts that they're using on the Russians to shoot at uh, the tanks and blow them up. And, you know, there were years prior to this of CIA paramilitary activity wherein we were training. You have to train people how to use these weapons. That's something that I hadn't appreciated before doing this story was how much it's not just airdropping supplies or sending them via logistics routes from neighboring countries. You have to show them how to use these things. It's not trivial. It's not like a video game where you just, you know, hold down a trigger. You have to understand how to use the technology associated with it. So we had CIA paramilitaries training people in the use of these uh, anti-tech missiles like javelins, sniper rifle techniques, covert communications. This is all stuff that not only President Biden has undertaken, but happened under his predecessor administrations, like the um, Trump administration and the Obama administration. What was interesting, our colleague um, Jim Rison, in a recent story he had, said that both the Trump administration, which is perhaps not as surprising, but also the Biden administration, were so concerned at the level of covert engagement that they, under President Biden, he actually sought to um, suspend a lot of these covert operations in Ukraine. So this notion that that we're not doing anything to help, that we're not, it's just not true. We've also long had, you know, although Ukraine is not a member of NATO, we have had NATO military trainers in Ukraine helping to assist uh, their defense forces for years. And a base where U.S. military personnel up until a few weeks before the invasion were stationed in Western Ukraine just came under Russian attack Um a little while ago. Uh, and, you know, many people saw that as, you know, a deliberate measure to sort of warn off Western countries. So, I mean, yeah, the idea that the West or, or the United States has not provided sufficient military support, I mean, I think comes under great scrutiny when you look at our recent history there. And since you mentioned NATO, um, let's let's talk about NATO a little bit and how this conflict sort of seems to represent um, you know, not just a conflict between Russia and Ukraine, but a conflict between Russian imperialism and and Western imperialism, and why Russia has been so opposed to Ukraine joining NATO, why Ukraine has requested it. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, you know, there were conversations that happened between the United States and Russia, where the U.S. may have informally or formally to an extent said that Ukraine will not join NATO. And, you know, Russia has has seen NATO as an extension of Western imperialism, of trying to encroach on its borders, on its sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. And while most people would agree that Ukraine is nowhere near ready for NATO admission due to um, corruption and other factors and criteria that are necessary before a country can join. We've definitely publicly put out there that we want Ukraine or we have Ukraine on track to eventually join NATO, which Russia sees as extremely escalatory. Ukraine and Russia share a very large border. And I think that there's concerns about NATO weaponry being stationed in Ukraine if it were to join the organization. And so that conversation of not that NATO expansion has necessarily justified Russian invasion here, but to an extent, did it lay the groundwork for the grievances that led to this invasion is a conversation that is happening across the political spectrum. 
and now, right now, from what we hear, it's it's one of Putin's biggest demands is, is having it confirmed that Ukraine will never join NATO in order to end the current hostilities. In terms of the the current hostilities, um, you know, we've we've talked about all of these ways of trying to avoid nuclear escalation. And Sarah, you've written a couple times now about the likelihood or the possibility of nuclear conflict. Could you tell us a little bit more about the U.S. and Russia's nuclear postures and what the risks are here? Sure. So the U.S. and Russia both do not have no first use policies, which means that it is within their security doctrines that nuclear weapons can be used in a conventional context. Russia notoriously has a very large arsenal of what's called low-yield nuclear weapons, which, to be clear, are not low-yield by any means. The the bombs that the United States dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki are both considered low-yield nuclear weapons, but that just goes to show how enormous um, and, and devastating nuclear weapons can be. We have the B-83 bomb that's exponentially more more deadly than those bombs that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But Russia has a very large arsenal of these low-yield weapons, and it's assumed by several U.S. military analysts that they believe it is within their doctrine to use one of these low-yield weapons for the purposes of to de-escalate, where it might drop a weapon with the hope that that will force everybody to retreat and bring an end to whatever conflict is going on. And so there's definitely a fear right now that Russia could use a low-yield nuclear weapon in Ukraine. But also, I think that, to to be clear, the main concern of Russia potentially using a low-yield nuclear weapon does exist within the context of if NATO were to get involved in this war. So it's more that a lot of experts believe that Russia would use one if it feels that it has faces some sort of existential threat, which realistically, unless Ukraine were somehow to be able to invade Russia and get close to the Kremlin, that Russia would only be pushed to use one of these types of weapons if the United States and other countries were to get involved and to pose some sort of huge threat to Russian sovereignty or to Putin's power. But you know, that's why, as Ken and I have been explaining that, you know, the U.S. sort of drawing these lines and being very careful to not do anything that's viewed as too provocative and, and to get involved is so crucial. Yeah. And I think that there are attempts to cast concerns about a nuclear exchange as sort of hysterical or, or you know, playing into the hands of the Russians, which to be sure, you know, they are uh, nuclear weapons do exist to, you know, coerce people and scare people with the idea that they could be used. But I don't think that concerns over them are, are misplaced or, or exaggerated or anything, uh, if only because the action that uh, President Putin has undertaken is itself pretty irrational in the sense that, you know, he's chosen to invade a massive country that is just you know, I think any sensible analyst would look at and say, how are you going to be able to occupy a country this large and be able to put down an insurgency? It just seems very unlikely and speaks to a mindset that is, you know, perhaps less rational, let's say, than than what one would hope of a leader of a nuclear state like that. And so because of that, um, his calculus in, in using a, a low yield a technical nuclear weapon or something like that be, becomes, a, I think, a matter of, of, of great importance and something we should you know, c- consider as, as unfortunately 
a possibility. I mean, the, the, the invasion in itself was to say nothing of the humanitarian costs, politically reckless. I, I can't imagine it's, you know, going to be popular, certainly in the medium to long term. And so because of that, I don't know that we're dealing with the kind of an adversary where you could count on, oh, they're not going to do this because that would be, su- you know, that would be dangerous or maybe even suicidal. I think that also, um, you know, the longer that this war drags on for, which also speaks to the issue of the U.S. supplying as much weapons as it does, um, does create more context for greater irrationality or at least deviation from Russian traditional military doctrine. So that, you know, if, if Putin is driven more and more into a corner and feels that there is no other way to create defeat in Ukraine than using more and more brute force, which we are seeing right now, then will he be willing to use a low-yield nuclear weapon? And, you know, I, I think that a lot of the concerns did stem from in the early days of the invasion that Putin put his nuclear forces on high alert. Um, and, you know, this was sort of seen as a public gesture to remind NATO, to remind the United States, we have nuclear weapons, don't provoke us. But, you know, as this war drags on more and as the, the West or the U.S. And, and NATO continue to supply weapons that create the possibility of direct confrontation or as Putin sees that, um, you know, the Ukrainian resistance is succeeding more than he would have expected. Does that put him into a position to escalate to this type of weapon is definitely a concern. We've, we've talked about um, the fact that nobody quite knows what what Putin will do or, you know, his thinking has been sort of unpredictable. But what about when it comes to U.S. policy? Sarah, you've written about the fact that we're still awaiting the what's called the nuclear posture review from the Biden administration. Um, could you tell us just briefly what that is and what we might expect from the policy when they when they do unveil it? Sure. So, you know, the nuclear posture review is a document that every president since Bill Clinton has released to sort of publicly declare his viewpoint on the U.S. nuclear arsenal, policies that would guide nuclear weapons usage and specific nuclear weapons that the U.S. does maintain and may decide to develop into the future. So Biden's document was expected early this year, I think, because of the invasion. They've delayed that. And I think there's a lot of questions in the nuclear expert community about how Russia's invasion may influence Biden's decisions um, within that document. So there were always going into this questions about would he change to a no first use policy or uh, a single use policy? Would he be willing to roll back certain low yield nuclear weapons that were begun under the, the Trump administration? I think those were the the biggest points that um, nuclear disarmaments uh, experts were hopeful for was that he would roll back some of these low-yield nuclear weapons that that Trump had started. And, you know, more broadly, the U.S. maintains a huge nuclear weapon arsenal. We have what's known as a triad. And, you know, there's always been, been hope that a likely Democratic administration might be willing to revisit that and at least roll back the ICBM force, which is considered the least necessary and also most dangerous leg of the U.S. nuclear triad. But I think that given the current political climate, I mean, you know, as uh, Ken was explaining in terms of pressure 
on Biden to do more in Ukraine, there's also going to be immense pressure not to roll back some of these weapons or not to change policy that the administration may have been considering prior to the invasion, because it sort of just goes back to this sort of superficial view on what it means to look strong in the international community. And, you know, unfortunately, that from countries like Russia and China might be viewed as escalatory. Um, so, you know, very eager to see what the administration ultimately decides uh, when when this nuclear posture review comes out. And in terms of the the pressures to kind of build up weapons arsenals or, you know, keep the conflict going, there's obviously a boon for weapons manufacturers here and for arms dealers. And some of those may then influence people in Congress pushing for war or think tanks, um, as we've touched on. So could we just talk a little bit about the the profiteers in this conflict and who this is good for? Yeah, they've actually discussed this um, pretty openly in their investor calls. There's been some reporting over the last couple of months where they're just they're just talking about the bonanza of um, profits and, and revenue that they stand to make with this essentially proxy conflict. You know, since we're not going to have boots on the ground or formal uh, military presence, um, a lot of that is going to look like arming partners, arming, uh, you, you know, sending them through neighboring countries. And so uh, the development of all these tools, and not, not just that, I mean, if you look at, um, for example, Germany, they changed their constitution to enshrine, I think it was like a 3% um, or maybe 5% increase in military spending. So this is this is a huge gift, not just to um, American weapons contractors, but internationally, you know, prior to this uh, conflict, NATO had increasingly seemed like a sort of a historical relic because there hadn't been um, this kind of um, conflict along those traditional lines since the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, that's not to say there weren't there wasn't tension, but you know, I, I can't think of a better gift for these guys, sadly, than than this invasion. And that's probably the case for uh, Russian contractors as well. And it makes me queasy to listen to the just openly excited <laughs> attitude on the part of some. I mean, I mentioned investor calls too, but you can. I mean. You could read between the lines how a lot of these, you know, trade associations and even Congress is talking. There seems to be a lot of excitement for the effect that this is going to have on the business business climate. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Germany and you know pledging to increase its military spending. We also had Germany announce last week that it's going to buy more F-35s, so there's a gift to Lockheed Martin. You've had, I forget which Eastern European country it was that was saying that it wants to buy more MQ-9 Reapers, which, you know, great for General Atomics. And, you know, these defense manufacturers are some of the biggest contributors, donors to political campaigns out there. And it just, it brings up very legitimate questions about motives on Capitol Hill behind, you know, wanting to send more weapons to Ukraine when they have this sort of influence in the background over their political career. That's a very good point. And just briefly, I think the investor calls were Lockheed Martin and and Raytheon. It was on CNBC, I think, that Raytheon CEO was kind of openly discussing the fact that this would be a such a good business opportunity before the invasion even. Obviously, you know, we have some certain uh, defensive uh, weapon systems that we could supply, which could be helpful, like the Patriot missile system. And as we wrap up, what do you think the kind of way forward or way out of this might be? 
Well, I think that we have seen begin to develop the sort of skeletal framework for some kind of an agreement. And I think people are rightly skeptical of the um, sincerity of the Russians when they're discussing this, but uh, both they and Zelensky are at least starting now to talk about, um, you know, what potentially they might negotiate over, you know, what kinds of concessions might exist. And so that is something that, as Sarah said earlier, we need to be able to discuss in a way that isn't going to feel great. Because we, again, I would love to see Putin held to the fullest account possible for this illegal invasion and for the, you know, humanitarian crisis that is precipitated. But at the same time, the only way out is going to be some kind of arrangement where, you know, both parties have to give up things they don't want to. And I don't see any way around that. And unfortunately, the political climate is not going to be conducive to that. We can't have a situation where politicians are going to be able to cast you know, anyone is as as favoring some kind of diplomatic solution as weak or as caving to Putin or this, this and the other thing. I am encouraged that, you know, some kind of a framework is beginning to emerge. And hopefully, if we can in- encourage that to continue to develop, um, that, you know, that could lead to an end of this, you know, horrible, horrible conflict. Yeah, I think Ryan Grimm, uh, during a White House press briefing, had an important question where he asked if Zelensky would be empowered uh, during negotiations with with Russia. Go ahead. So, aside from the request for weapons, President Zelensky has also requested that the U.S. be more involved in negotiations toward a peaceful resolution to the war. What is the U.S. doing to push those negotiations forward? <clears throat> and I think that's a really crucial question that hasn't really been asked um, and pressed about more um, is because in addition to Ukraine making potential concessions, you know, in an effort to end this war. I think there are important questions to be asked about, is the U.S. doing and and Europe doing enough to create off-ramps for Putin? To what extent can the sanctions, the really devastating sanctions that NATO countries and the U.S. have inflicted on Russia, could those be lifted as part of some sort of final deal? And yet you don't really see these kinds of questions brought up because everybody's curious about, are we going to, you know, authorize the sending of Polish MiGs? Are we going to provide more military weapons? What about a no-fly zone? And it's, well, you know, as Ken said, any end of a conflict has to involve some sort of diplomatic solution that's not going to be satisfying to all sides, but that's the way these things end. And, you know, there's very little conversation about, um, you know, since the U.S. has played a very significant role, um, what kind of concessions it will be willing to make. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming on. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Maya. That's it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Olivares is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. And I'm Maya Hibbett. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you want to give us feedback, 
email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.